The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and SART. These podcasts are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Welcome to SART Fertility Experts, a podcast that brings you discussions on important topics for people trying to build a family. Our experts are members of SART, the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology, an organization dedicated to ensuring you receive quality fertility care. Hi, this is Dr. Kelly Lynch. Welcome to SART Fertility Experts. Today's guest is Dr. Sangeeta Jindal. Dr. Jindal earned her PhD in physiology from the University of Toronto, Canada, and became a high complexity lab director in 1997. Dr. Jindal currently serves on the faculty of Albert Einstein College of Medicine as an associate professor and laboratory director in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Women's Health. She has mentored grant-supported translational research projects for a number of trainees at academic programs and is also an off-site lab director of private and academic IVF labs across the country. Dr. Jindal was president of the Society for Reproductive Biologists and Technologists in 2011 and currently serves on the Executive Council of SART, SRBT, and on the ASRM Practice Committee. Welcome, Dr. Jindal. Thank you, Dr. Lynch. Pleasure to be here. Today's topic is about the reproductive biology lab. Basically, what happens behind the scene in the IVF lab? Dr. Jindal, many patients choose an infertility program because they're referred to a specific physician. But talk to us a little bit about what they should look for in an IVF program when it comes to the lab. What are these specific issues that patients should be aware of? So the laboratory, to my mind, is the engine that drives the entire car. It is the engine that drives the IVF program. So the laboratory um, is really key to a patient's successful experience with an IVF clinic and with their physician. The physician is often backed by you know, an excellent laboratory staff and protocols and laboratory professionals are very committed actually to patient care. Even if you don't meet lab professionals or speak with them directly, they are definitely there. They are trained professionals, and we can talk about training uh, that they go through for this position. Um, communication with the lab professionals, if you're able to do that, is very valuable. And it is, of course, with the hands-on technical experts, it's very direct communication with them. So that's always useful if you're able to communicate with the lab staff. Excellent laboratories follow their protocols quite strictly, I would say, with minimal protocol drift. The laboratories are adequately staffed and they're able to troubleshoot patient samples and they customize care as needed. I would say the most important feature of a great lab versus a good lab is excellent communication. They communicate with their uh, clinical team. They cl communicate uh, with their lab team, often with the patient. They work very diligently. They do not take shortcuts. Yeah, I think that's, that's how I would describe an excellent IVF lab. Thank you so much for sharing some insight into what happens in the lab. 
our patients don't always realize exactly what is happening and who's working behind the scenes because they may not have a tremendous amount of interaction with the lab. But can you talk a little bit about what a typical embryologist training involves? Sure. So the training of a lab professional, these are obviously science-based professionals. Laboratories in the U.S. do require a lab director and certified and educated lab professionals. So usually the lab director will have actually an advanced degree, a PhD or a degree in veterinary medicine or even an MD. And they must also have a specialized certification as a high complexity lab director. So you can imagine how many years of education go into this and then they have to have years of training, they have to take an exam. Uh, so this is all to be able to run a laboratory. But the laboratory folks, the people in the lab, are really um, the heart of the lab and they all must have a bachelor's degree with a science focus. So again, they're college educated, they have to have graduated with a degree. There's also a specialized certification for those who are supervisors. So it actually takes years, you know, a minimum of two, three, four years of full-time work for them to become certified. Uh, this is a very big commitment. People stay in the field for years. Once you're in, it's not something you can do casually or temporarily. It's really something that's a calling for these people. And I have recruited and trained lab professionals now for, for over 25 years. And there's always certain qualities that I look for. These are candidates that already have things I cannot train, such as integrity, leadership qualities. They are the ones who travel to work in the middle of the night when there's an alarm that goes off, when there's a natural disaster, when there's an emergency. Those are the people that are in the lab um, that are taking care of your embryos. Wow, that's such a great description. I would probably add attention to detail. I'm sure that is something that you really look for as well. Definitely. Uh, we hope you're finding this episode of SART Fertility Experts helpful. Remember, for more information on this and related topics, visit www.sart.org and click on the tab labeled Patients. And now, back to SART Fertility Experts. What would you say is the difference between a good lab and a great lab, Dr. Jindal? Yeah, I think the great labs that I've seen, and there are a number of them across the country, um, they have a very strong quality of leadership. It's a sort of a atmosphere of, of leadership and community within the laboratory. They work as a team. Um, it's it's a team, but not everyone's equal. And so uh, there's a really important focus on communication. Um, again, people have to stick to protocols. I think if they're very strictly following protocols and they audit any kind of protocol drift, these are the things that can happen naturally as people get comfortable with protocols. And um, it, I think just real attention to detail, having a very strong quality management focus, making sure all the equipment is optimized, that all the reagents they use are within expiry, that the, um, that the embryologists are trained um, adequately, and that their competencies evaluated regularly. These are the things that really determine a great lab. 
Talk to me a little bit about lab safety. Many patients are concerned about the safety of their eggs, sperm, and embryos in the lab. Can you tell me a little bit of what you do in the lab to keep them safe and maintain um, the identification of them? Yeah, I, I understand this is uh, a natural focus for patients, especially for a lab where they don't meet the lab staff or they don't see the lab. Uh, the laboratory is not patient facing, so it's kind of a black box. But patients should be reassured that there are very strict protocols that um, particularly SART member clinics follow. Um, they, they are protocols that are all designed to reduce and minimize the performance of errors. Um, for example, we use plastic, sterile, disposable dishes. They are not reused, they are not washed. Everything is used just for each patient one time. We use two unique identifiers for each patient. Usually it's a patient name combined with something else like their date of birth or a medical record number, um, a unique identifying number. Um, all the media that we use is prepared commercially with very strict quality assurance. And that is so nobody's making a homebrew in their lab and using, you know, dishes that they have stacked uh, for a while. And um, they keep things at the right temperatures. They are everything is labeled. Um, the other piece that's very important is that we do witnessing. So there's witnessing of all the main steps multiple times per cycle for each patient. So all the main steps where we are putting things in dishes, taking them out of the incubator, combining eggs and sperm, identifying embryos for transfer, identifying embryos for freezing, identifying embryos for thawing, multiple, multiple points in a cycle that we have witnessing either with an active witnessing process or using semi-automatic AI and they're able to have these witnessing systems so that we're moving into AI now in the laboratory, artificial intelligence. And so we are able to witness um, more and more. And I think this should be of, of some comfort to patients. It's very technical. It's, I wouldn't say foolproof, but it definitely offers a measure of um, security that there will be no mix-ups and it reduces errors. That's great to hear, Dr. Jindal. Thank you for explaining that. Can you talk a little bit about how IVF has changed during the pandemic? We're in the middle of the COVID pandemic at this time. What's, what's different for you now? Well, what's different is I don't always see the patients as much, which is unfortunate. The patients um, in general um, are having their cycles through telemedicine. And then when they come through the laboratory, we tend to really reduce the contact points it's for everybody's safety. We're meeting each other wearing masks. We meet each other from a six foot distance. We do still have them witness their, their labels and make sure that everything is accurate. We identify them um, actively by spelling their name. So we do meet the patients and the patients do should feel comforted that we are still identifying them and reaching them. Um, but we in the laboratory, we are definitely um, augmenting cleaning protocols. We have very um, augmented protocols now to clean surfaces, to reduce sharing of pens and paper. We maintain a social distance. We wear masks in the bigger labs. Actually, there are teams of people so that they create little bubbles so that they don't overlap staff in case somebody does fall sick. 
we wear gloves even more than we used to. Uh, some of the airflow in the laboratory can be modified in order not to blow any viral particles out onto the lab staff, working with samples. And of course, we're cleaning surfaces um, more and more and um, just removing clutter. There's a lot of things that we do that's very detail-oriented um, to make sure that the lab area is very clean um, between patients, for patients, and this is all due to the pandemic. Wow, thank you for sharing that insight into all that you're doing. I'm sure it's reassuring for patients to hear that you're really giving it a lot of thought. Can you talk a little bit about cryotank and cryo storage safety? I know that's been a concern for some of our patients and they might like to hear how we manage that. So yeah, cryotanks are basically big thermoses. They're thermoses with insulated sides and they have a cork in the top and we store cryopreserved embryos, eggs, sperm, tissue in liquid nitrogen, which is held in this cryotank. And that's pretty typical for IVF labs is to have tanks that store at minus 196 degrees Celsius, which is in liquid nitrogen. So these are standard manual fill tanks. I'd say they're the most common. There are requirements that laboratories that are accredited must follow. There are requirements and there are recommendations and there are very, again, very strict protocols around cryo storage. I can mention some of those. Um, we actually physically have to check the tank several times a week. We also have to have a continuous alarm system that alarms 24-7 in case it detects a rise in temperature or a decrease in the level of liquid nitrogen. This will alert the lab. This is why we get calls in the middle of the night with uh, emails, texts, uh, phone calls, and we have generator backups. We have things backed up in the cloud and uh, we test the alarm systems. These are all the things we do to ensure that the embryos for these patients are safe in our cryotanks in each lab. A common question I get from patients is, just how long can my eggs and embryos or sperm be stored? Yeah, it, as far as I know, it is indefinite. Um, if the liquid nitrogen level remains above the samples, and the samples are not warmed inadvertently for any reason, um, they should stay intact. And I have seen in the literature reports of babies being born from embryos that have been frozen, oh, now it'd be well over 20 years. That's great. That I think that is a question that we are often asked, and sometimes people have trouble believing it, but it really is true. Finding a trustworthy source for fertility information can be overwhelming. ReproductiveFacts.org, a patient website developed by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, has the medical information you need for your family building journey. At ReproductiveFacts.org, you'll find up-to-date videos, fact sheets, and answers to frequently asked questions, all developed by medical experts based on scientific evidence without commercial bias. For your fertility questions, turn to a source you can trust. ReproductiveFacts.org. I have a few other questions. You mentioned accreditation. Why is it important for patients to know about accreditation? Yeah, I realize that patients are referred to fertility specialists. They they go to clinics that um, their friends have gone to or their doctors recommended that takes their insurance. 
um, that their Instagram influencer tells them to go to. I, I understand all that, but uh, really, as I said, the the most important part to me of a successful uh, cycle for a patient is um, that the laboratory supports the clinical stimulation that they get from their doctor. And so I think it's really important that patients do look at which clinics they're going to. And approximately 85% of IVF clinics in the US are SART member clinics. And what that means is that SART clinics follow strict guidelines for outcome reporting and for lab accreditation. In particularly, the embryology labs are required to maintain accreditation. And they have to follow these requirements for quality assurance, quality improvement, quality control, cryo storage. So these are things that are not always on the clinic website, but these are the things that are very, very important to an actual patient experience um, and who's the professionals taking care of their embryos. So just to restate, in order to be a SART member, your lab has to be accredited, correct? Yes, uh, all 50 states now the laboratories must be accredited by two agencies, either the College of American Pathologists or the Joint Commission. Another question we sometimes hear from patients who have already received treatment in one place, um, if they move is, should I move my embryos? And this is a common issue as many people move around the country for work, for family, for various reasons. What should they do if they have eggs or embryos in storage in another lab and they're moving away. Yeah, we understand in the laboratory that um, moving embryos and eggs is now a fact of, of lab life. It never used to be, but it is now. I, I think um, it is not uncomplicated and it is not without risk. So yes, I understand it has to be done, but uh, in some cases, but particularly eggs, I would say are more fragile and I'll get to that in a minute. Um, the laboratory has to fill out a lot of, of paperwork. It's like filling out a car loan application to transfer patients' embryos between clinics. We have to satisfy state requirements, local law requirements, FDA requirements. We have to communicate the embryos that are being transferred, the cryo device, the media, the protocols. So these are things that are, it's very, very labor intensive actually for the laboratory to transfer things and receive things. Um, that not to mention that they have to use these transport tanks, which are dry shippers. So there's liquid nitrogen in there and their embryos go in there and they're sealed and they're shipped. But, you know, there's always a risk when you transfer things. It's shipped by FedEx, for example. Is it standing upright like it should be? Is it sitting somewhere on a loading dock? These are things we can't control and we do worry about. Embryos, though, are even more robust than shipping eggs. And so I know egg freezing can be an excellent option for patients. And in recent years, there have been really reliable techniques that have been developed. And patients can now buy frozen eggs from donor banks. And these are definitely shipped to clinics, but they are incredibly fragile. And even slight variations in protocol or temperature can really affect the um, egg survival and impact embryo development. So, while I understand that eggs and embryos can trans can travel, um, have tank can travel, but I would probably caution patients to think twice about transferring eggs between clinics. I might recommend that they might want to thaw the eggs where they were frozen. I think that's really good advice. 
And I think also getting the input of the lab that you're sending and receiving from and to is also a good idea too, because they may have their own opinions about this as well. And you wanna make sure that they're comfortable, I'm sure. Dr. Jindal, I had one other question, and that was just, could you talk me through a, a typical day in the lab? What, what happens when you come in in the morning? So I can tell you the best part of my job as a lab director is when I get to cover in the laboratory. It's actually, it's just a delight to be in there. The lab has all this great high-tech equipment and a lot of white noise and and it's very clean and it's very quiet and it's just you're ready for the patient samples and it's a good start. When you meet the patient, you identify them at the time of egg retrieval if you're able to do that. Meet the patient at that time. You can meet this partner if you can at the time when they produce their sample. Uh, there's a timeout that happens when the lab staff are present in the procedure room so that everybody confirms the team that's doing the egg retrieval that uh, it is the correct patient. Eggs are collected and the number is reported back in real time to the um, physician, the provider doing the retrieval. The total number of eggs uh, is counted and then they're immediately placed in the incubator for several hours. And these dishes have been prepared, as I said, labeled, uh, the day before for each patient. So they're put in the incubator. And while the eggs are, are resting in the incubator, the sperm is processed. So in the afternoon, usually early afternoon, the eggs and the sperm are combined and everything is handled uh, on heated surfaces in the laboratory. We use high powered microscopes and either the eggs can be placed in a dish with the sperm and put right back in the incubator, or they can be injected by the sperm. So um, if you do do an injection, which is ICSI, that's using a very high powered inverted microscope and eggs are injected one at a time with one sperm each. And again, they're placed in the incubator overnight. The next day, which is called day one of cycle, the eggs are checked for fertilization. And so the dish is removed from the incubator to a heated surface, again, with a high-powered microscope. We check for signs of fertilization. And then these zygotes are returned to the incubator, usually until day five of culture, which is when they reach the blastocyst stage. And then at that point, we make a decision about transferring them back to the patient or freezing them or biopsying them and freezing them. So those are we have very limited touch points with the embryos once they're created. It could be that the embryologist will check embryos on a day three of culture, um, but usually it's day zero, day one, day five, maybe day six. So these are the days that we check the embryos, otherwise they remain undisturbed in the incubator. Um, so the patient communication with the laboratory could be on day zero, day of retrieval, day one, day of fertilization when they're reporting the results, and then day five when they do the transfer or the freezing. So you mentioned the limited touch points. I think that's really important. I think as patients, it can be hard to wait. We've talked in other podcasts about how hard it is to wait, but one of the hardest thing is waiting for embryos and culture to see what happens. And can you explain why it's important to have those limited touch points? Well, the embryos are being incubated and the incubator is uh, warmed at 37 degrees Celsius. The, it's kept in media. This is pH, pH balanced for the embryo to ex experience as little stress as possible during 
during its development during these early days. So every time you remove an embryo from an incubator, you're taking it out of a warmed environment. Um, you may be disrupting the pH balance because the temperature is dropping. Um, yes, you keep it on a warm surface and you look at it, but you really want to work quickly and put it back. The other risk of um, increased touch points is you're disturbing the dish. It's possible the dish can be knocked. It's possible the dish can fall. It's possible the dish can be put back in the wrong place in the incubator, which you know should not happen. But every time you touch it, something like that can happen. So the less you do to disturb the embryos, the better, it sounds like. And that's one of the reasons why there's only a few times when you'll be checking on the embryos. You also mentioned fertilization of eggs, and I just wanted you to touch on that a little bit more. IVF and ICSI, I realize those are whole separate topics unto themselves, but can you just talk generally about when IVF is done and when ICSI is done in the lab? Well, I should start by saying that I think nationally over 60% of cycles are ICSI cycles now. So uh, we did start out in the early days of IVF doing insemination cycles only before we had ICSI. ICSI came along in the early 90s, so we've been doing it a long time. But if a woman has a good reserve of eggs, and more importantly, the partner or donor sperm is a very good count, sperm count with good motility and morphology, there's no indication that the sperm has to be put into the egg. They're able to be cultured together in a dish. The sperm is washed. The eggs are placed in you know, clean media and the sperm is added at a certain concentration. And one sperm is allowed to penetrate the outside of the egg and to um, establish fertilization. But they do it on their own without any assistance and they don't completely bypass all the steps naturally that occur during fertilization. So that is just standard insemination. ICSI is really indicated traditionally for uh, couples with male factor infertility. Also, if you are using frozen thawed eggs, um, ICSI is indicated as well in order to breach the egg surface and the sperm to get inside. Um, it's also indicated in cases where you do a biopsy and uh, genetic analysis for genetic mutations. Uh, so when an, um, you wanna create an embryo for testing, ICSI is also indicated. So the ICSI procedure is much more invasive, obviously. We're loading a micro needle um, with manipulators under a high powered microscope uh, we're loading one manipulator with suction for an egg and the other one with one single sperm. And we're very carefully inserting and depositing the sperm into the egg, retracting the needle, and then uh, leaving them again overnight for fertilization. Thank you for explaining the difference between standard insemination and ICSI. I think that's something that's important for patients to realize there is a difference, helping patients understand the the different reasons why the different procedures might be performed. Dr. Jindal, is there anything else that you'd like patients to know about what happens in the lab or any other parts of the process what about selecting embryos for transfer? We are also opening the incubator um, only on the day of transfer or freezing. So it is um, unknown to us exactly what we'll find when we open the incubator and see which ones have developed. From the ones that fertilize, we do expect maybe 50% of them to form usable blastocysts on day five. Uh, you have two ways actually of choosing an embryo for transfer 
or for cryopreservation, well, transfer, either by morphology, the way that the embryo looks, we grade several different um, aspects of the blastocyst, which is really the most common and the most traditional. And the other way of doing it is the genetic analysis of the embryo, where we remove some of the cells, we freeze the embryo and send those cells off for cytogenetic analysis. And that comes back and tells us which ones have a normal set of chromosomes, um, normal uh, number of chromosomes, and those are the ones we choose for transfer. So it can either be by morphology, uh, which corresponds pretty well, actually, to um, the genetic health of an embryo, and but not always, 100%, and also through genetic analysis. Those are the two ways. Many patients, I'm sure, are wondering whether or not they should consider having their embryos tested for genetic abnormalities, and I realize that's also another whole discussion, but there are different types of screening available. Uh, one of the types of embryo screening is aneuploidy screening. What are your thoughts about aneuploidy screening? What patients benefit most from it or what do you think and what is your impression in the lab? So aneuploidy screening has been developed over many decades now. It's reached a pretty sophisticated level where we do use it. I know, I think most programs use it at this point. Um, whether or not they use it for all their patients or some of their patients, it's driven by by each clinic. But I do think the evidence indicates that there is a use for genetic analysis for aneuploidy for older women who may have older eggs that are not always as chromosomally robust, uh, women who've experienced recurrent pregnancy loss, and women who've been through a number of times and have experienced recurrent implantation failure. So I think these are, are very solid evidence-based indications for using genetic analysis for aneuploidy. I can tell you in the laboratory, it is highly technical work, labor intensive. There's way more touch points. It's always risky when you're biopsying um, a tiny, tiny embryo. This is all done under high powered microscope using manipulators holding tools. I mean, it's really high tech. So there's always a risk that's introduced when you do something like that. So that's that's what I think. I think a lot of people do have it. And I think there is an indication for it in some patients, but perhaps not all patients. So certain selected patients that you mentioned may really benefit from it for various reasons that they've had multiple miscarriages or they haven't been able to conceive with, and the reason is not really understood, or they're older and maybe more at risk for having embryos with genetic abnormalities. But it may not be necessary for every patient is what I'm hearing. And so that's I think correct. That's some, what I think. Yes. Yeah. Some patients, I think patients need to understand that too. I think there's such a confusing array of procedures and it's a menu, we call it. There's so many things that are out there and many people wonder, do I really need this? Should I do this? And I think that's where we work together to try to help our patients figure out what's best and mm -hmm. take you through this process. So Dr. Jindal, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today about what happens in the IVF lab. This has been a really wonderful look into what happens behind the scenes. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Kelly. Thank you so much. This is Dr. Kelly Lynch from SART Fertility Experts, and I've been speaking with Dr. Sangeeta Jindal from Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Thank you for listening to SART Fertility Experts, your resource for information on IVF. If you found this podcast useful, 
Please like us on your favorite social media platform and tell your friends about us. For more family building resources, visit www.sart.org slash patient information or www.reproductivefacts.org.